Hello and welcome, esteemed gamers, friends, listeners. It is Leighton here from Leighton Night with Brian Wecht, and I just wanted to tell you that if you're looking to get even more podcast goodness to put in your face, then we've got just the thing for you, which is the official Leighton Night Patreon. We have several tiers where you can get access to recommendation lists for every episode, listen to Patreon-exclusive minisodes, get into the super awesome fan Discord, and watch videos like Brian's songwriting process for jingles on the show, or me taking apart and cleaning my mechanical keyboards. It's really fun and cool, and we super appreciate your support. It's neat. We would love to see you there. Without any further ado, here's the episode. Enjoy. Love you. Bye. All right, so, scared. So I was accidentally stalking Leighton only because I know another Leighton and I just couldn't piece the last name. Wait, who's the other Leighton? The other Leighton also works in audio, uh, but was a sound designer for me in Boston. Oh. Was, yeah, but this was Leighton Terry. Now I know, but when I first saw Leighton, I'm like, what's the last name? What's the last name? I looked you up and I'm like, oh no, not the same Leighton. <laughs> yeah, and it's not implausible given how many people will you and I know like in common and have worked with in various capacities over the years. Like it's not crazy that, you know, I'm doing something with someone from Boston. Right. <laughs> it's also a weird name. You don't run into a lot of Leightons, especially not spelled the way mine is. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But then I saw that when I looked you up. I saw that you went to SCAD and SCAD has come to Sarasota a few times. Their improv troupe has. Oh, really? I didn't even know SCAD had an improv troupe. Wait, Scatterday Night Live? <laughs> 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 is that really it? That's what it was called when I was in it. <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. Layden, you were in the SCAD improv troupe? Briefly. I mean, it was like an improv club. Like, it wasn't super proper. I didn't go for very long because, um, how do I put it politely? It weren't very funny. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what was it called when they came down to Sarasota, Well. Do you remember the name? Was not Scatterday Night Live because <laughs> I would have remembered that. That's a really great name. Yeah. You know, they came down with a couple of different teams. I remember that. One of them was like definitely club level. They didn't do too well. But there was another one that was more like curated. Like they curated their best players and put them out there. Uh-huh. They ended up winning. Backstory a little bit more. Uh, we host the Southeast Regionals of the College Improv Tournament. Mm -hmm. Oh. We being the Florida Studio Theater in Sarasota, Florida. Cool. Mm. And so we host it almost every year, except for the last couple of years, obviously. The last two Januaries have not been possible. But yeah, we host them and they always send the team down. And then one year they won. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I did not know much about the lineage of Scatterday Night Live. It was mostly something to do on a... I'm pretty sure that we did it on Fridays, too. Like, a bit of a misnomer. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This is really unprecedented for this show. I say that given that we've actually done this several times, so it is by definition precedented. But I feel like we should introduce ourselves right away. Normally, well, we go for like an hour before we actually introduce the guest. We're really of the school of like, let's throw all the children into the deep end of the pool just immediately. You guys figure it out. Yeah, which is a very, you know, improv kind of thing to do. <laughs> but let's just get it out of the way and introduce everybody up top here. Layton, do you want to start? I guess. Hey, <laughs> what's up? 
bastards. Can I say bastards this early in the episode? Probably doesn't matter. Sure. It's 9, 12 a.m. on 420. And this is Late Night with Brian Wecht, which is the podcast you're currently listening to. That other voice is Brian. Hi. Say the thing. What thing? You're supposed to say that other voice is late. What the fuck, Brian? (laughs) (laughs) Is that a thing? I honestly did not acknowledge that as a thing. Do I say that every week? Every time it's like, you know, other voice, that's Brian, and then... Do I even know how this show goes? Wait, this is episode 61 of this, and I just realized that that's something I do. Okay. Well, yeah, it's like we do that, and then I'm like, mystery guest, would you care to introduce yourself? And then they introduce themselves, and um, this is a terrible show. (laughs) I think it's great. All right. That other voice is Layden. So, mystery guest, would you care to introduce yourself? Sure, yes. (laughs) Hello, friends. My name is Will Luera. I uh, am out of uh, Sarasota, Florida, where I work for the Florida Studio Theater. I'm also a traveling, gallivanting, a uh, <laughs> I'm sort of like a itinerant, itinerant. Thank you, improviser that goes all over the world doing all sorts of things. Yeah, man, you've been like everywhere, all over the world, literally, right? To do improv, I have. Yes, the one trip that I was trying to book before all of this was uh, Nigeria. It was I was trying to do a Nigeria Algeria trip. <laughs> yeah, I guess same continent, you know, yeah. closer to each other than Florida is to either one. So, right. If I'm there, I'll just do another one, which is what I usually do. If I'm in the general area, I'll start reaching out and say, okay, where else can I go since I'm already here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was traveling for physics, I would do exactly that, especially if it was another country or something. You'd book the one trip and then you'd be like, well, where else can I go give a talk? And then just send out a bunch of emails and kind of see what shakes out. I know you've done English and Spanish language improv, right? Yes. How does that work? Like when you're traveling to a place in another country to do improv? You know, most countries are bilingual in English. Yeah. Of course, like Europe, it's almost a given, except for Italy. And even Greece had a little bit. Italy was the one where I needed a translator of all the countries in Europe. Oh, really? Yeah, that was the only one where I needed a translator. And whenever I'm in Asia, Japan is the one country where I need a translator. All the other ones... All the other countries I went to were pretty bilingual. That's amazing. But Latin America, thankfully I speak Spanish, so I I just switch over to Spanish. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be something amazing to study about improv culture in different countries, right? I mean, I'm sure there are commonalities, but the differences, I'm sure, are fascinating. I would love, and it's not a joke, my dream would be like, I would love to do like an Anthony Bourdain style show of performing comedy in different countries. Yes. That would be pretty amazing. I never saw this movie, but there was that Albert Brooks movie from 15 years ago, Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World. Do you remember this? I've heard of it, but I have not seen it, no. You know, Albert Brooks has some pretty beloved movies, and this is definitely not (laughs) on that list. So I don't know exactly what it is. But, you know, for all I know, it's like deeply problematic or something. But, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but like there's comedy and then there's improv. One is a subset of the other. I think his thing was more like a stand-up kind of thing. I did get to perform at a stand-up club in the Muslim world, speaking of the Muslim world. Oh, where? In Saudi Arabia. And so I was invited in, and I say invited because when I went, which was 2015, still there was no tourists in Saudi Arabia. Tourists were not allowed in Saudi Arabia back then. I think they are now, Mm -hmm. but you needed to get a special invite into the country. And I got one because I was invited by the U.S. Embassy. And so they needed to ask the king of Saudi Arabia, who then sends you the invitation. Mm -hmm. And so I had to go to Saudi Arabia and do a three-city tour. Wait, so the the king of Saudi Arabia had to approve a special improv pass for you (laughs) to come to the embassy. (laughs) Yep. 
That's amazing. They make a big deal of it. It's like the only way you're allowed into the country if you're not Saudi Arabian is through an invitation from the king. And so I was invited and I went with a friend of mine, a stand-up friend of mine. His name is Ahmed Barocha and he is half Palestinian, half Irish. Oh, wow. Yes. When they booked it, they're like, can you bring the stand-up with you? And can he be Arabian, is Arabic background? And I knew a few and he jumped at it. That's awesome. We did a week-long tour in Saudi Arabia. There are no comedy clubs in Saudi Arabia. I was going to ask, like, Saudi Arabia is not known for its liberal, freewheeling <laughs> comedy style, you know? Like, it's a pretty conservative place, generally speaking, right? It really is, yeah. Very conservative country. And when we got to our second city, which was Jeddah, which is about 30 minutes south of Mecca, you're like right at the doorstep of Mecca and... There you are in the auditorium of a public building. This comedy group converts this auditorium. And when I say convert, I mean, it is an amazing process they go through. They convert it into a comedy club. From what I saw, they get there like four hours before the show begins. They have all of these panels that they put up. They cover the interior of this auditorium, which I imagine like a library auditorium. Mm -hmm. They convert it all so that it looks like a stand-up club. I mean, there's a brick wall, amazing lights. <laughs> they put up a brick wall thing? <laughs> they put up a brick wall thing, yeah. <laughs> and like the music and there's like burger food trucks. I mean, the whole thing is just crazy. And Whoa. It's awesome, yeah. And like the stand-up was great. And is it Arabic or English? So that's the thing. It's like we show up, the whole show is in Arabic, but then it's our turn. And then I just say all right, thank you all for coming out. So we're going to be doing our part in English. And it was amazing. Everybody in the audience just nods in unison. They just flipped over. They flipped the switch from Arabic to English. And now they were ready for English comedy. And I was still nervous. I'm like, okay, what reference level should I play at? Right, which is a thing, right? Should I play at like- Of course. Middle school English, high school? Like how far up should I go? Mm -hmm. I played at like full lingual right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like a good place to start and then adjust down from there if you have to, right? Right, yeah. But they got it. You don't want to treat your audience, you know, like they're dumb. So I treated them smart and they were right there with me and we just stayed at that level and they were great. They were awesome. And did Ahmed do English too or does he speak Arabic? He did English stand-up and they loved it. He did a lot of his like growing up half Arabic material, which they absolutely loved. Mm. Yeah, I bet. That's awesome. Was it all men doing stand-up or were there any women too? Great question. It was all men. One of the club managers is a woman. And we did talk about it because I did have during that week, female students at the different consulates and embassies, but they talked about it, how it is tough. It's tough for the women to make that jump, for them to want to make that jump from like a class into a performance. Mm -hmm. But also, I think for, they would say some male audience members, it would be a tough transition for them too. Yeah. To see that. But at the club itself, there are two separate entrances into the club. Like there are two separate entrances to everything there. Yeah. There is the male entrance and the family entrance. Mm -hmm. So the family entrance is basically, you know, women and women with their companion, which can be a family member or a husband, etc. Mm -hmm. But then once we were in the club, it was packed like on both sides. Wow. Like so many women were there watching the show and as well as, you know, all the men that were there to watch the show. And that for me, it was surprising, uh, to be honest. I mean, just based on what I was experiencing so far. Yeah. But everyone was really, really into the show. It was great. It's such a cliche, but people are the same everywhere. Like, you, you have countries that are more conservative and less conservative, and there are cultural differences. But anywhere you go, people are going to be pretty cool, generally speaking, right? And yeah. 
you know, they're going to want to have fun and have a good time. And what that is might vary place to place, but, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> who doesn't like to laugh and hear something funny? Right. Yeah. Like what I learned from all the places I've traveled to is that a lot of the things that we stress about, a lot of the ways that we find to relax, a lot of our day-to-day issues are almost exactly the same anywhere in the world. Yeah. There are some social rules that are different from country to country that you just need to be mindful of. Right. But, you know, even though it's very different for Saudi Arabian kids, they still flirt, they still date, and the process is extremely different. Yeah. But they still go through those conversations and through that tension. So if you do a scene about that, they will laugh. Yeah. Right? But you still need to be mindful, of course, of social protocols and boundaries as you do that scene. Yeah. That's got to be interesting, too. Like, when you're doing improv in another place, like, I would imagine it's not too hard to transcend a line you didn't even know was a line. Mm-hmm. You know, and to like kind of stumble over it and have the room be like, <gasps> you know, has that happened to you when you've been abroad? It used to happen to me early on. A lot of my initial traveling was to Latin America. Mm-hmm. And my first few shows, I failed miserably. I mean, yes, I was speaking Spanish, but here's the thing about American comedy, American improv, we are very talky. We love to talk. <laughs> yeah. And we love to get up on stage and like try to outwit each other. And here's my pun, here's your pun. Let's just heighten verbally until the scene ends. And we tried to do that. Our first trip, this was to Puerto Rico. We being uh, my group from Improv Boston, we go down to Puerto Rico and we just fell flat. Just like nothing. (laughs) Nothing. And here's what's even worse (laughs) is that their theater down there, the the audience was given these little like styrofoam clown noses. Like imagine that, like little balls. (laughs) What? Everybody was given one. So like little soft tomatoes, basically. Oh my God. Oh no. And if they didn't like the scene, they could throw it at you. What the fuck? <laughs> like 10 minutes into our 30, 40 minute set, we start getting these little soft tomatoes thrown at us. Oh my God. And we're like, oh, this is horrible. And we still have 25 more minutes of this. Oh, that's excruciating. Why would you arm an audience? Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, sure, it was soft. Like, you know, it doesn't hurt or anything, but it's so humiliating. The fact that it doesn't hurt is almost more humiliating, where it's like the sole purpose of this object is to make you feel like shit. It feels like a very good IRL metaphor for the internet, where you're just handing people things they can lob at you if they hate what you're doing. Yeah, the internet is like handing a toddler a hand grenade and being like, go nuts, kid. Have fun. Yep. <laughs> Once one started, then everybody just, of course, jumped into it. And uh, But that was the lesson, right? That's so brutal. We went back to our hotel room. We're like, what the hell went wrong? <laughs> we talked about the other shows. And we're like, well, everybody else was so physical. Like, we're just up there talking. Yeah. Everybody's like playing inanimate objects, <laughs> right? They're a huge facial expressions. Like, they don't walk invisible dogs. Uh-huh. Somebody plays the dog as you walk the dog, <laughs> right? The dumb little things like that, that you don't think about. And so the next day when we had our second show, we did exactly that. Like we had a scene where we were fishing. And as we were fishing, the actors were coming out as fishes, as crabs. Uh-huh. And then audience is dying. <laughs> so I say that because that taught me. I'm like, okay, well, not everybody watches improv the same way. Yeah. Not everybody appreciates comedy the same way. So when you go to these other countries, you got to start doing your homework. And and that's what I do now. Before I travel there, I start asking about what's happening right now. Like, you know, especially whoever the producer is, I'm like, what's topical right now? What are the boundaries? What should I not talk about ever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? 
they'll give me all that information ahead of time. You know, like whether it's China, Japan, England, whatever, they'll tell you. And they're generally self-aware enough to know what those things are, I would imagine, right? Like they can tell you pretty well. Yes, especially the boundaries. You know, maybe if I ask them, you know, what's topical right now, they'll have a little more trouble with that. But the boundaries, they're right on top of that. And they'll let you know. Have you run into anything in that regard that's really surprised you, like boundaries-wise? There was one time... Because, you know, we think of England really similar culturally. And there was one time I went, something was going on that I wasn't aware of. But they basically told me, they're like, do not do any scenes about the royal family. Oh. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, got it. <laughs> that was one, I guess I forget sometimes how sacred that still is for a lot of people. Yeah, for the more conservative people, especially, right? Yeah. Speaking of English improv, so, you know, we lived in England, Rachel and I did for three years. And in the beginning, we were trying to, you know, like get involved in the comedy community there. And so we went to a lot of shows. And the thing you said, Will, about American improv being talky, like, oh my God, dude, I feel like British improv was like that times a bajillion. (laughs) And it seemed to be a lot more, you know, quippy and witty and just chatty, even compared to what we were used to from (sighs) America. The other thing we noticed there. You know, when you start going to see shows in a new place, you're like, is this bad or is this just the style? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And they would never edit scenes, ever. These scenes would go on for like 10 minutes. And I remember I got a bruise on my leg from Rachel grabbing it with her hand <laughs> because she was like, edit, edit, edit. Someone end this, end it. And <laughs> for those of you who don't know, listeners edit means, you know, someone like wipes or whatever and starts a new scene. So these scenes just go on forever. And it's like, okay, is that just the style or is this kind of bad improv? Is it like the particular show we're watching? But we saw enough of it where it was like, I guess this is just a preference over there. For all I know, we didn't go to see a thousand improv shows. It was more like, I don't know, 20 or something. So maybe that's just, you know, a cluster of bad data but it was definitely something we noticed. I would agree with that. The first improv show I saw in England, before I was even performing there, somewhere between 15, 20 years ago, and I remember the show being over two hours long. Yes, they were all forever. And they had like 12 different groups. They went on forever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was interesting because they have such a tradition of comedy and specifically improv, right? Like, I feel like most people probably had their first exposure to improv through Whose Line. Right. And probably the British version too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was interesting to see that, oh, this is actually pretty different than what we're used to. Yeah, I'm curious how that intersects with the ideas of like, what is the word for it? Like cultures that have different views on temporality of like, you know, some places are very strict about time and some places are like, ah, yeah, this is going to go as long as it's going to go. Yes, I'm curious how much that applies to improv. I will explore all of this in my show. (laughs) (laughs) The Economist podcast, they had this amazing series called Doing Business in Blank. And it'd be like basically aimed at US, UK business people. And it's like, if you're going to literally anywhere in the world, here's what they do. And there was some place, I can't remember what it was. I think it might've been Mumbai. And they were like, look, traffic is so bad here. If you get there within like a few hours of when you're supposed to be there, that's considered on time because you just never fucking know like what you're going to run into getting there. Wow. Yeah. I was really thrown when I went to Mexico on that trip that I almost died on. Just like I knew like, okay, so we're going to be pretty loose with time. For context here, Will, Layden has a story about getting cholera in Mexico. Yeah. The Oregon Trail disease 
that I almost died in a hospital from. Whoa. It was cool. <laughs> but anyway, like them just calling me like out of nowhere, like, oh, hey, you have a thing happening right now. This thing's going to go on for three hours. And I'd be like, okay, nobody told me about this. <laughs> but as somebody who's like very chronically way too early for everything. It was like a big adjustment for me and a lot of me being extremely anxious of like, I don't trust the <laughs> clock anymore. What's happening? Yeah. Yeah. You're reminding me of a uh, a slight point of conflict that my wife and I have. Uh, so <laughs> I'm Mexican-American, so I'm first generation. And the time thing that you're describing is very real. I feel like the closer you are to the motherland, the more real it is for you. Uh -huh. Right? You mean how loose time is. The closer you are to Mexico, the looser time gets. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and my wife is German-Brazilian. She's almost full-blooded German. Oh. Even though she grew up in Brazil, in a Latin culture, she's used to that temporal concept. So she also grew up in a Germanic household, mm -hmm. which is very contradictory to that. And so she and I, just in the house, like our concepts of time <laughs> are always rubbing up against each other. Yeah. If we have something at one o'clock, at 12.30, she's like, okay, it's time to go. And then I'm like, well, it it's only really takes 10 minutes to get there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And this is not a dig in any sense, Will. I think the first time you and I met, you were half an hour late. Yep, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> and I've gotten better. I've gotten better. <laughs> so you and I have known each other for almost 20 years now, which is crazy to think about, but is yeah. definitely true. For context to everybody, I had moved to Boston. I was a postdoc there. And I had a literally just a comedy friend of a friend who was like, and I just started doing improv stuff. And they were like, here are the people you want to write. One of them's Will. And I was like, okay, I'll email Will. <laughs> and I remember waiting for you outside the old Improv Boston space in Inman Square. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, and, you know, like the theater was locked. And I was like, what's going on? And then we met and had this great, you know, been friends for 20 years now. So it's been awesome. But I do remember hanging outside the first Improv <laughs> Boston space for a while being like, what's going on here? Yeah, for you, it was 30 minutes. For me, it was like four of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is really fascinating just how different people's perceptions of time are. And I think it's additionally interesting too, having so many friends who have ADHD where like being able to keep track of time is a very difficult thing and like managing time. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, we have this system that we all agree on that has numbers to it. <laughs> this means a completely different thing to every single person subjectively <laughs> and changes vastly through cultures. <laughs> Yeah, And yet here we are at 9.36 a.m. on a 4.20. What day is it? Tuesday? Tuesday? It's 4.20. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's 4.20. Yeah, I was definitely raised in that, like, if you're not early, you're late kind of culture. Mm -hmm. I don't ever remember being told this explicitly by, it would have been my mom, not my dad, probably. But just like, if you're not there 15 minutes early, you are fucking up. Like, what's going on? Which is by no means a universal philosophy. But that was definitely the attitude I grew up with, which is interesting because my sister is kind of the opposite. Hmm. I wasn't raised like that. I just have anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to talk more, again, about the context I was talking about here. Like, Improv Boston, Will, you were there for... 17 years total. Yeah. Oh, my God. Whoa. So when I got to Boston in 2004, how long had you been there at that point? That was my seventh year. I'd been there as a performer for three years and the artistic director for four years. 
Yeah. Again, for those of you who don't know, Improv Boston, what's the right tense to use here? Is or was? I know they closed the Central Square space. Right. Improv Boston lost its physical space. It's still in existence. They're about to start virtual and in-person classes soon, I think. Perfect. Okay, so Is is one of the major improv players in the Boston area. And dude, I love that place so much. I just have such deep affection for it and the people I met there. You know, I think the first time we met, you were like, yeah, you're a musician? Great, come play the show. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> really? Just show up and play? And I remember you invited me to a main stage rehearsal. And, you know, I'd been doing improv for like maybe two years at that point. I was not experienced. And I couldn't believe I was like, I'm hanging out with the Improv Boston main stage cast. <laughs> and like, it was at a rehearsal. I got to go on stage with you guys during the warm up. And I was like, these are the nicest people I've ever fucking met. <laughs> like, it's just like this immediate, you know, come on in, be part of the team, the club. Obviously, you weren't casting me as an actor or anything, but mm -hmm. it was just like this very communal philosophy, which it was just immediately welcoming. And I was like, oh, this feels great oh, you know, from the start. And you were such a big part of that. I appreciate that. Thank you, Brian. And that's always been kind of just a philosophy of mine in general when either building the community in Boston or building it in Sarasota, uh, where I am now, is that for me, like if you reach out to me, like that for me is already a big step. It's showing some initiative and interest. Yeah. Right. And then I test you by showing up late. So that's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you reaching out to me is, is a big part for anybody, right? I'm like, oh, so you really are interested in doing this. And then once I meet you, if I'm getting a good vibe and, you know, we're connecting, I really don't mind kind of just starting to open doors for people. That's so great. And if at any point you're like, oh, no, I think this, this door here, I've gone far enough down the hallway then, you know, that's fine. That's fine. But, you know, I think it's good to offer people opportunities who seem like they have the drive and the initiative. Like putting all of these gates in front of people, that's why I'm not a big fan of the pay-to-play model that a lot of comedy clubs have or theaters, yeah, so. Oh, dude, by contrast, I may have talked about this on the show before. I remember, so after Boston, Rachel and I moved to New York and we did UCB stuff. So we started taking classes there because they're obviously very much pay to play. Mm -hmm. And I remember after the first, I think I took a sketch class. I'd never taken a sketch class before. And I walked up to the teacher, nice guy. And I was like, so, hey, you know, I'm a new musician in town. I do improv too, but, you know, I'd love to play. Like, what are the opportunities for musicians? And this guy just very coldly goes, we don't use music. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you don't use music at all? And he's like, no. I was like, okay, so like if I want to accompany a scene or accompany a group, is there anything I can do? And he's like, no, not here. And I was like, oh, well. Wow. I guess I can go fuck myself then. <laughs> and what he should have said was, look, the style of improv we do usually doesn't have an accompanist and, you know, maybe there are other groups that blah, blah, blah. But instead, it was just this like immediate shutdown kind of, you cannot be a part of this sort of vibe, which was mm. so off-putting. Yeah. And I don't want to talk, UCB, I had many great experiences at UCB and met a lot of wonderful people. Like a lot of the stuff that I did there, I really, really love. But it was definitely on the opposite side of the spectrum of gatekeeping than mm -hmm. Improv Boston. 
All right, everybody, all listeners, mark it down. Brian hates UCB. (laughs) That's right. Finally, my campaign to close the sunset space worked. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think what you're speaking to, though, and again, yeah, not specific to any one theater, but that gatekeeping, even like that closed artistic model can be very limiting. When you and I first met, Improv Austin was a lot smaller. Yes. Very tiny. It grew to be a pretty big place by the time I left. But part of that, and this sounds cliche, of just saying like, yes, and the people. I don't want to like glorify that that improv trope. Trope, yeah. And I think of one of my performers early on who was just like, hey, Will, I'm thinking about doing stand-up. And we weren't doing stand-up at the time. Mm-hmm. But he just came up to me and he's like, hey, well, I'm thinking about doing stand-up and I was wondering if I could do a, an open mic night. And I'm like, hey, yes, let's do it. Like, what night of the week do you want? Yeah. If I could find a house manager and a tech director, you got it. And it ended up growing into one of our biggest programs. Eventually, we had a full stand-up program. Yeah. You know, again, for me, like, if the person has drive and initiative and passion and is a nice person it could be good for business. (laughs) Yeah. The thing is, it's often such a small risk to take, Mm -hmm. right? To to try something new. I feel like people turn it into this big thing. That is, of course, one of the main lessons of improv, right? Is to drop that risk floor to zero. Like Mm -hmm. basically treat everything as possible. Mm -hmm. And stuff like that. I love that attitude because it really is just like, hey, let's try it. You know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Who cares? Mm -hmm. But everything's worth trying. If from the get-go, it seems like there's some glimmer of hope, yeah, we'll mm-hmm. give it a shot and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things where like, if you have multiple people who are excited about something, like use that energy. Mm-hmm. It feels like such a rare, beautiful thing to have a bunch of people who are very like specifically excited about something. That's how shit gets done. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. I really did feel that at Improv Boston. It was like a collection of people who were excited and happy to be there. I miss that place so much. Those three years for me in Boston, I lost both of my parents within those three years of being Mm -hmm. in Boston. And there was some really hard personal shit going on for me, mainly that. Mm -hmm. But I look back on what probably on paper looks like a pretty dire time in my life. I look back on Boston as being such a happy and fun Mm -hmm. period. Well, for two reasons. One was the improv community and the other is that's where I met Rachel. And thanks to improv, by the way. Mm-hmm. And of course, we'll be married 14 years this October. So wow. like, I, have, <laughs> I owe Boston and improv in Boston, <laughs> like kind of everything <laughs> to some extent. And I really mean like, you know, now I'm a full-time musician comedian and I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be doing that without going through what I went through in Boston, both at Improv Boston and Improv Asylum. It is amazing to me how much I owe doing improv in Boston specifically and improv Boston specifically. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. I'm so happy to have been a part of that. Thank you, Brian. Of course, dude. Hey, I wanted to ask more. You mentioned Japan. So I wanted to hear about the improv culture or what you did in Japan. Like, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so Improv Japan in Tokyo was the first group that I had reached out to. So I did four years, I think, four years of touring in Asia. And it started with Tokyo. Then I think year two was Tokyo and Osaka. Year three was like Tokyo, Osaka, Seoul. Wait, am I remembering correctly that Osaka is like the seat of Japanese comedy? Is that right? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then the last time through, I extended uh, from Japan to Korea and then China and Hong Kong. Mm. It was the last time I went out there. But yeah, the Tokyo scene, so there were basically two 
different parts to it, right? And after I toured, I realized that there's even another part of the scene that I never even got to. But the two main ones that I went to is the Japanese-speaking audiences. Mm-hmm. So I would be performing with an interpreter on stage, or we would be, improv also would be performing with, a, with an interpreter on stage. And then the second group I'd be working with is one that catered exclusively to the expat community. So that would be in English. You mean like expat Americans or English speakers specifically? Exactly. Yeah, expat English speakers. And those were two different shows. Like the expat would be much more, yeah, American style improv and games and jokes, et cetera. Yeah. And the one that was exclusively for Japanese audiences, a little bit more different. And, you know, of course, the same jokes wouldn't work. So it ended up being a lot more physical. How do you even do timing with a translator? (laughs) Right. (laughs) What do you do? It seems like if there's anything that would kill a joke, it's saying the joke and then pausing, waiting for someone to say it again. (laughs) And that obviously, well, you know, if you don't speak the original language, you're only hearing it once. And also, I don't know if I'd necessarily trust the interpreters to like nail the inflection (laughs) of, of a joke or even if it would work, you know, were audiences into it? Like audiences still enjoyed it. What we ended up learning over time was we would keep statements short and specific, mm-hmm. like no real nuance or no vague statements. Like they, and they were always very short so that we could keep like a tight pitter patter between the characters. Mm-hmm. So it's like actor, translator, actor, translator, actor, translator. Like it was going at that kind of very rapid speed. And then sometimes we would go into depending on the dialogue. And, and the great thing is you get to rehearse with the translator. Yeah. So sometimes it would be line, line response, line response, line translator, right? That's it. And they translate that chunk of three. Exactly. Because because the timing was important, we want to make sure that, to get all of that out. So that's part of it. Then the other part of it was oh, physicality. I mean, I would leave those shows like drenched because the physicality (laughs) you were making up the lack of dialogue with just much more physicality yeah 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 that's awesome a lot of like running around the stage a lot of big moves big faces slow motion scenes a lot of fun (laughs) yeah Yeah. really crosses all cultural barriers slow motion yes (laughs) i don't know if this is a generic thing i mean this is kind of what you were saying before i guess it seems like physical comedy is really big in other places in a way it isn't in the U.S. Do you think that's fair or is that too generic? No, I think that's absolutely fair. And I would say like it's even different in different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like in Asia, the full body communication, full body pantomime was very, yeah, like taking on inanimate objects and animals. Like that was really big there. Whenever I'm in Latin America, like facial, face is big. Oh, wow, yeah. And proximity to the person is big. What does that mean? Like intimacy. Like getting up in people's space. Yes, exactly. Like that is a big part of what we're communicating physically. Mm -hmm. In Europe, especially the more like Latin countries, Italy, France, et cetera, even a little bit of this in uh, Romania as well, Greece, also pantomime, Mm -hmm. object work, like really creating the space. Mm -hmm. Again, different ways that physicality manifests itself. Honestly, this feels like a thesis, like a graduate thesis, Mm -hmm. you know, like in a good way. Yeah. I mean, people I'm sure have studied this, but like, especially with improv, I don't recall hearing anything about this in quite the way you're talking about it now. It's so interesting to me. Yeah. It feels hard enough to be really good at improv or comedy in one language slash culture, but being able to transcend those boundaries and have a deft understanding of it is just really impressive. Yeah, totally. And I love that, like, this is like such a thing for you now. You know, obviously no one's been traveling a lot 
in the last year, year and a half, whatever. But what an amazing career to have. So you have to have this great theater at home and then you get to go all over the place and do it. That's so fucking cool, man. Thanks, man. Thanks. It's a passion that's grown over time. I don't think I was into traveling even as much as I was until I started to travel and do improv. And then suddenly I really became passionate about not just getting to know other countries, but getting to know the comedic voices of these different places. And then on top of that, and I hate to reference it again, this whole time I was also a big fan of Anthony Bourdain. And so like to see what he was doing with food Mm -hmm. was feeding the way that my curiosity of comedy in different cultures. Like I was learning like how you could learn about other people through this one thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, this feels like a good time to move on to some segments. What do you think, Layden? Yeah. Great. So our first segment, this is the pop culture recommendation segment. We're going to say some stuff we like in pop culture. It's called What's Poppin'. And here's the theme song. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? All right. Nobody heard it, but that's fine. That's the way it goes. We put it in post. We should do a bit or something with this, right, Layden? Do you think that would be a good bit? Brian, I'm going to come to your house and kill you. I know I say this every single episode, but it's true. There's a history here. Well, Layden, what's pop? Oh, my God. Don't throw to me after this. Once again, it's morning. This is not Layden morning. It's Layden night. I'm not used to this. And now you're hitting me with a bit. This is the opposite of a bit ambush. This is a bit vacuum. Will, what's poppin'? <laughs> <laughs> All right. At the start of the pandemic, my wife and I said, let's watch the MCU from beginning to end. Oh, wow. Because I think when I say that, people are thinking like the movies, right? You start with Captain America. This is what I was going to ask. But because I am who I am, and if you know me, I tend to be a very completist type of person. <laughs> so then I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not doing the movies. We're doing the movies and the TV shows. Like oh my God. everything, everything. That's a lot. It is so much. (laughs) Like somebody did the math. It's like nine weeks straight of television, of viewing that you're watching. Jesus Christ. And so remember, this started a year ago. And so we're (laughs) still working our way through. And we got up to a TV show. And some of these, you might've heard of Daredevil. Yeah, I watched all the Netflix ones. Jessica Jones, right? Yeah. There's one that was on the Freeform Network called Cloak and Dagger. Oh, okay. And everyone I bring this up to who watches MCU, I'm like, oh yeah, we're, we're about to watch this show called Cloak and Dagger. And everybody's like, what is that? And I know I felt the same way. I was like, okay, I, I'm just going to get through this show because I have to. My wife and I absolutely love it. Oh, wow. Okay. It is surprisingly awesome. Like Jessica Jones and Daredevil take place in New York City and specifically in uh, Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen, yeah. Yes. Cloak and Dagger takes place in New Orleans. And... Like right now, we're three, four episodes into season one. I have no idea what the superpowers are yet because it almost doesn't matter. Like you're meeting these characters. <laughs> yeah. So one character is dealing with essentially like his own demons, which include racism. The mm-hmm. other character is dealing with her own demons, which also include like misogyny and all the men in her life. Mm-hmm. And there's this one line that really kind of just gave me chills when he heard it, where the kid... He's getting mad at his mother. He's like, why don't you get off my back? He's like, I'm doing everything I can just to make it. Her response was, that's my fear, is that even if you do everything right, you still won't make it. 
Mm. Right. And it was just such a, especially in the times, you know, the social movements that we're going through right now, like it was just such a powerful line. So it's a lesser known MCU show that also is dovetailing these issues of racism and misogyny in a way that I was not expecting. Yeah. Cloak and Dagger. Wow. It's on Hulu, by the way. Okay, cool. That also sounds like the fear of every parent. And I'm sure you can relate to this too, Will. Oh, yeah. Like the fear that you're going to give your kid everything and it still won't be enough, you know? And it's like, what else can you do? You know, all you can do is be the best parent you can be. But who knows if, you know, they won't quote unquote make it, you know, not in terms of success, but just like be happy or whatever. Yeah. Well, one thing I've learned now, father of two daughters, is that maybe this is where improv helps. I'm two dads. I need to be a different dad for each kid. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah. Because they're two different people and they don't both respond to the same things. And so- One of them requires a little bit more hand-holding because she's overly anxious. Mm -hmm. And the other one is a bit more free-spirited. So I just need to watch her from afar, making sure she doesn't jump off the house or something. (laughs) (laughs) How old are they now? Olivia is 11. 11. Oh, my God. Yes. Layla is, how old is Layla? Seven. (laughs) Eight. Eight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Audrey, you know, she'll be seven in actually a month from today. Oh, my God. (laughs) And... 11 feels like the far future, even though I'm sure it's going to be here like tomorrow. Yeah, it'll be in like 10 minutes. Yeah, Yeah. I know. But 11, wow, that's like getting pretty teenagery. So her birthday, she'll turn 12 in September, right, of this year. Yeah. And so my favorite line was like, I forget what I was saying to her. She's like, Dad, stop it. I'm almost a teenager. And then (laughs) pause. And then she responded with, I mean, I'm going to be 13 next year. <laughs> I mean, she's right. She's right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you get the full body eye rolls that I get where you say something like, you know, some kind of dad joke or whatever? And Audrey does this thing where she rolls her eyes, but also kind of collapses at the same time. <laughs> and it is the ultimate physical expression of dad. <laughs> you know, it's it's so funny to me. And the fact that she's only six and already has basically exhausted her tolerance of my comedy. I love it, <laughs> is, is what I'm trying to say. Oh, yeah. Whenever I can, I try to get those eye rolls. Oh, they are like <laughs> gold to me. They're the most <laughs> precious commodity. <laughs> yeah. I love them. Layden, now would you care to say what's popping for you? Sure. Um, I've been reading a lot lately, so I don't look at the gaping maw of Twitter. And in order to soothe the beast inside, I was like, you know, I need to read some really fucked up body horror right now. (laughs) So I read The Cypher by Kathy Koja. I think I said that right. And They Live Inside You by Jeremy Robert Johnson, question mark. He has like three first names. Mm -hmm. But The Cypher is like... (laughs) What if House of Leaves was actually good? House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski is a very influential horror novel that I have like a very complex relationship with because I think it's one of the most brilliant premises for a book. And then the book is the most obnoxious shit you've ever read. <laughs> but the cipher is amazing. Super pulpy. There's like a weird hole in the ground. Everybody wants to fuck the hole, but also the hole is making everybody's bodies weird. So right up my alley. Hi, maybe. And then They Live Inside You is a short story collection that just has some of the nastiest body horror I've read in a long time. So of course it was me sitting on the balcony feeling physically ill, grinning like a lunatic. So both come (laughs) highly recommended. Awesome. Brian, what's popping? What is popping for me? I don't think I've actually done something like this in the past. It is a type of puzzle that I've been really into recently, which is called tapa. 
Have either of you heard of this? No. Do you eat it? <laughs> you do not, but it is the same word. A tapa, it's a relatively new puzzle type. It was invented by this uh, Turkish person whose name I'm hesitant to pronounce, but I'll try Sirkin Urekli. I'm sure I got that wrong. In 2007, it's a logic puzzle, first of all. And it's like a shade in the boxes kind of puzzle. So it looks like a grid, say a 10 by 10 grid, just of white squares. And some of them have numbers in them. And the numbers tell you how many boxes adjacent to that number are shaded in and if they're Mm -hmm. contiguous or not. So if you see like a two and a three, that means there's two consecutive boxes and then some number of spaces and then three consecutive boxes. And there's other rules. The rules are a little bit complicated, but it's really like 10, 15 minutes to kind of vibe with it. They are so fun. I think I did tapas for like two hours yesterday or something while I was, you know, listening to stuff to give notes on it or whatever. It is such a fun logic puzzle that I'm just like, completely into them right now. I love logic puzzles. When you're in that like flow state of like figuring something out, your brain is like firing on all cylinders. You see this like branching tree of possibilities in front of you. And the kind of thing that if you stepped away for five minutes, it would completely collapse. and You'd have no memory (laughs) of what your thought process was. When you're in it, you're in it. It's such a great feeling to be wandering down that path of logic. Honestly, it's the exact same feeling I had when I was like doing a big math calculation or something. And you're just like in it and you're like, okay, point A to point B to point C, like boom, 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 boom. It's so much fun. And this is just, you know, some weird little logic puzzle. There are a few good sources of them online. One is gmpuzzles.com has a blog, which has a lot of different puzzle types and you can get a bunch there. And if you just search for Tapa Puzzle online, You'll see a website that has a bunch of tapa and other puzzles too. But they're really, really fun. You can start them small, like a six by six grid. You do it in like literally a minute and then go bigger and bigger and bigger. And of course, some lunatics make these where they're like 100 by 100 and take you three weeks to solve, which I don't have the patience for. But (laughs) they're really, really fun. Looking at it, it reminds me a lot of Picross. I've played a lot of Picross on the Nintendo Switch. What is Picross? Very, very similar conceit where it's like you have the numbers of here's how many squares that are filled in. Yes. Some people call them paint by numbers. I think it's like the numbers, they have rows and columns with like the numbers and then you have to color in those pictures and it forms a picture. Is that right? Yeah. It's just like a perfect zone out thing, but like zone out by zoning in. So I feel it. Yeah. It looks like Minesweeper art. Dude, I've never thought about it, but that's exactly what a fucking it. Yes, it is like the puzzle version of Minesweeper. Yes. Wow. Cool. All right, moving on. Next segment. Layden, hit it. Hell yeah. We got some recommendations. And now we're going to do Peaches and Lemons, which is one part airing of a petty grievance and one part gratitude exercise or three part gratitude exercise, I guess, maybe. 62 episodes or whatever, and I'm not any better at explaining this segment. We're all going <laughs> to say a thing, a lemon, that's annoying. And then we will each say three peaches, which are things that are good and nice and fun and make us feel glad to be humans. Peaches Peaches Someone hit me in the face with a stupid lemon. I'll do a lemon first, which is, this very well is something that I might have complained about before on this show. but. Metallic Sharpies. Go off. (laughs) It is impossible to find a collection of metallic Sharpies that work consistently. As part of our business model with the band, we sign a lot of shit. And 
it seems like you have two options when you're signing stuff, especially if it's on a dark surface, so you need to have something that stands out. You gotta go metallic, because that's what stands out. And you can either buy Sharpies, which never work, but dry quickly, or markers that work and then take an hour to dry, and thus extending the whole process. And you don't realize until you have smudged everything in a massive stack, and you're like, oh no, this thing that people are paying money for, I've ruined it. You say that, and when we were signing one of the NSP albums, I signed a lot of them and then realized that I had smudged a ton of them, and I nearly had a heart attack because I was like, oh, fuck. We fixed it. It was not a big deal. But having that stuff bleed is just terrible for exactly that reason. You're like, people are paying for this. I, you know, We can't fuck it up. But why can't silver Sharpies fucking work? It's so stupid. They've been making these for, I don't know, I'm going to guess 100 years. I'm making that up. I don't really know. But I buy these containers of like 50 Sharpies. They come in these like cylinders. And most of them, when I say most, I mean like 98% of them do not work. Like you take them out to write with them and there's just nothing. Yeah, they look hot and fresh. They look nice and fat and juicy. It's sealed. It's taped. <laughs> it, oh, and Everyone I know, Leighton, you've had this issue. Everyone I know who's tried to use these things has come up with the exact same thing. And yet I never hear people complaining about this in a public way. I'm calling out Silver Sharpies. I, I, I hate them <laughs> so much. This is why we need to start our own boutique signing Sharpie competition business that's for a very small pool of people who have this very specific problem. We had a thing where we were on tour and we, you know, we signed posters on tour to sell at the merch booth. And we had to sign them and we ran out of markers and we had to send someone out. The poor person, it was some runner at the venue, went to like five different art supply stores just looking for decent metallic markers. Oh my God. And I felt so bad. The Sharpies just wouldn't work. And now I'm happy to say the pen I use now, not to buzz market, but it is a Bic Intensity metallic marker, which write very well, but take forever to dry. But oh man, I'm so mad at Sharpies. I'm just I'm mad at Sharpies. <laughs> <laughs> oh. This is maybe your angriest lemon thus far in the history of the show. But you recommended those pens to me. I got them. I was signing late night posters and they did not interact nicely with like the gloss poster for some reason. Oh, yes. So then I took extra time to write on the back of every poster just to be like, okay, you can't really see it on the front, but you're getting <laughs> your money's worth. Yeah, that's the other thing that we learned. I could talk for hours about what level of gloss or matte is required for optimal signing. But yeah, if like the finish on the poster is wrong, it's going to fuck up your markers. Also, one worse than silver Sharpies, fucking gold Sharpies. Oh, well, here's the real rub is they sometimes package them with multiple shades. You can't get the silver by itself. So you have to get silver, gold, and like bronze. Yeah, yeah. They're all terrible. <laughs> They're all bullshit. I hate them so much. Anyway, that's my lemon. Awful. Just really like tragic stuff that we have to deal with <laughs> in our day-to-day life. Yeah. Layden? My lemon is, I love when you stub your toe and then you convince yourself that you've actually broken your toe and then you Google it like, hey, how do you know if you broke your toe? And they're all like, well, it happens. You just sit there. Your toe is going to be purple. It might be broken. You don't got to do anything. Just yeah. basically a full foot. God, this show is increasingly becoming about my various foot woes. Um, <laughs> I like full foot kicked the wheel on one of my office chairs and uh, my like second from pinky toe is just solid purple, like oh. down into the oh foot my. knuckle. I'm sorry. 
So the other day I was like having a very hard time walking on it. So I don't know, maybe it was broken. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just going to fall off. I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. (sighs) That's my lemon. Will. Ah, my parents are visiting right now, and which means that I get to go out and have meals with them often, which is great. I love that. I get to uh, uh, catch up with them. They're visiting from Chicago? From Chicago, yes. And it reminds me how no matter, and we, we go to like a different breakfast place every day, but none of them, and I know this is a very picky thing to complain about, none of them have just the perfect breakfast that I want. And it's not that tough, guys. Not that tough, <laughs> right? All I want, I want... Two eggs, potatoes, a selection of meat. I don't eat all the meats. <laughs> Just give me one of the meats. <laughs> Toast, and then a sweet option like waffles or pancakes. Mm-hmm. That's all. That is my perfect breakfast. And it's like if we go to one place, they give you all three meats. And I, I just want one, right? As I said before, mm-hmm. the other place doesn't give you toast. Like you have to ask for toast. What? I know. I know. But they give you the other stuff. And then the other place, they don't give you the sweet option of waffle or pancake, but they give you French toast. So I have to ask for the switch. (laughs) So they all come close. It's like they're all teasing me by just coming really close to what I want, but not giving me the exact thing that I want. I feel like I'm pretty flexible with other meals, but (laughs) with a breakfast too, it's like, it really does have to be that exact perfect thing (laughs) in order to be satisfying. With a dinner, you're like, okay, well, you know, maybe I didn't like this particular side, whatever, it's dinner, you know. But I 100% agree with you. Is just something about breakfast where if it's not exactly right, you feel like a chump. Yeah. yeah, all parties have to be perfectly represented. Like if one of the things is off balance, it throws off the balance of everything else. Like, oh, the eggs are fucked up or like the hash browns are too dry. Like, nope, the equilibrium is off now. Yeah, exactly. The one that was almost perfect. I'm like, I don't need the sausage and the ham. <laughs> and I asked, I'm like, can I just get the bacon? They're like, it comes with all three. And I'm like, ah, oh, Okay. So then, you know, then I have to like force eat those sausage links and uh, anyway. <laughs> it's a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> the waiter is just staring you down, fork to your throat, like finish the sausages. Oh, but when you find that perfect breakfast place, it is, oh, it's amazing. Yes. As you say, the stars need to align just right to make it happen. The coffee is an important element of the whole thing too. Because it has to be the correct level of shitty and it needs to be flowing like wine. Yes. (laughs) This is something I do whenever we tour. My main interest is breakfast. Mm -hmm. And everyone else in the bus gets up at like, you know, 11 a.m. or something. I'm usually up at 6 or 7. And I will just strike out in whatever city we're in. If I have to take an Uber or whatever, fine. I'll look for the best breakfast place I can, bring a book and just sit there for a couple hours. And you can find some real gems in random cities with good breakfast. There's a lot of different options. And of course, depending on where you are, maybe you get some really good local breakfast things or whatever. Like, you know, if you're in Texas, you got to get breakfast tacos, that kind of like, Mm -hmm. there's always good local stuff going on. But oh, I love finding awesome breakfast places around the country. Mm. Yeah. I found my perfect diner. And over the course of the past year, it closed. So rip Nick Steiner. I love you. Peaches, anybody? Somebody else do peaches first. Okay. I'll throw mine down. First peach, as of two days from now, I will be fully vaccinated. Whoa. Mm -hmm. 
I'm very excited about it. So not much else to add there, except I hope the side effects aren't too bad, but even if they are, it's fucking worth it. So yeah, definitely. That's great. The second peach, my daughter beat her first video game this week. <gasps> yes. Congratulations. And yes, it was Bowser's Fury. Like I literally didn't help her at all. She played it on the Switch. And when she beat it, <laughs> she was just beaming. She was so happy. Her face exploded. She couldn't believe that she beat a game all by herself. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was so great. She's on her way to being a little gamer. And the fact that she beat Bowser, and she did it on her first try. And she was like, Daddy, you didn't do it on your first try. She's correct, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, honey, it took me a few tries. She also got 51 cat shines before she got into the final battle. I only got 50, and I was told that fact many, many, many times. Wow. She's just thrilled that she beat Bowser all by herself. So that was fun. (laughs) And my third and final peach is I. (laughs) So for Christmas, Rachel got me a dim sum cookbook. Love dim sum. And I was curious about cooking it. But if you're curious, it's the Namwa cookbook. It's a famous dim sum place in New York. And in the beginning, they're like, all right, here's what you need. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm getting a walk. So I went to this place, this uh, website, walk shop, and ordered a bunch of stuff. And that was like January 5th and just nothing for months. And I was like, where's my fucking walk? (laughs) So I sent them an email, no response. Eventually I was like, you know what? I'll just call them. I called them and they were like, yeah, oh, we're so sorry. The order just got like misplaced in the holiday rush. We'll send it out right away. So after waiting for more than four months, actually, I got this beautiful walk and walk accoutrements in the mail. And I've been walking like crazy for the last (laughs) couple of days. It's such a great thing to have. It's amazing. We got a, not like a super crazy expensive one, but like a good walk. And it rules. I've never cooked with like a real walk before. I love it. I love it so much. We've been walking everything for the last (laughs) few days. (laughs) The ability to like legitimately like toss stuff within it as you're cooking is such a delight. I don't know if you use like cooking chopsticks, but like cooking chopsticks plus walk. Woo. That's the stuff. We don't have those. We have, I think it's called a chuan, like the spatula kind of thing to move the stuff around and then uh, a couple other things. So it's basically just a walk and a spatula. It was really great. They send instructions for how to season it. You put it in the oven for like you bake it. So you you get this thing and it's like bright silver and then you bake it and it turns black. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they tell you rub oil on it first and like, you know, it's basically like a cast iron kind of thing. You're not supposed to put soap in it. You just keep using it and it gets better and better and better as you use it. In the instructions they sent, they said something really cute. They're like, look, it's impossible to screw up a wok. Everything you do is reversible. If you make some mistake, don't worry. You can like just basically rub it off and go back to your original walk. So take chances, have fun. You know, I'm very excited. And pretty soon we're going to start trying some of these different dim sum recipes. And hopefully they turn out because I love dim sum. Mm. What's the name of that book again? The book is called the Nam Wah N-O-M-W-A-H cookbook. And I think the author's name is Wilson Tang, I believe. This is a dim sum restaurant that's been around for like literally a hundred years in New York. Mm. And he's not in the original owner's family, like his family or he took it over semi-recently within the last 10-ish maybe years. 
but he kind of like modernized it a bit and they opened up a new thing and blah, blah, blah. He's like this very entrepreneurial restaurateur kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And this cookbook, it's one of those like very conversational, kind of like a Bourdain cookbook. Yeah. Fun, you know, interesting, there's history sort of cookbook. I, actually, I really love the cookbook. I was just reading it last night and it's a fun read regardless of the recipes. So, What recipe are you most excited to try? Hargau. I love Hargau. Like shrimp dumplings. Ooh. Yeah. Seems pretty easy. I'm sure it's not as easy as it seems because what is, but... That's cooking, though. Yeah. I just want to steam up some shrimp dumplings. They also have, what do they call it? The three master fillings. And it involves, like, blending pork. Like, you literally put a bunch of pork into a blender. Mm. Which sounds very exciting to me. So <laughs> I'm going to make some dumplings. Yeah. Yeah. Once we're all sufficiently vaxxed, I would love to cook with you and Rachel. That sounds fun as hell. That would be amazing. Yes, please. Great. Will? Yeah. So um, my three peaches. One is I had mentioned one earlier. My, my family's in town. My parents are in town. So that's the first one. I always have to remind myself when they're here, because, you know, some of those same younger anxieties and tensions can sometimes come up. <laughs> For sure, yeah. <laughs> like my mother cracks me up. We'll be surrounded by other adults my age who are in our 40s, right? <laughs> Early to late 40s. And my mother will be like, hi, everybody, I'm Willie's mom. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, mom. <laughs> uh, Does like, anyone else call you Willie? No, she's like the only one. <laughs> I understand. I'm sure like I'm going to have similar tendencies when my girls are big. Oh, hell yeah. So I have to like remind myself, I'm like, you know what? Well, like it's your mom. Like be grateful that they're here. And that's number one. And uh, it's so great to have them here. They leave tomorrow and um, we'll have one more breakfast, of course, <laughs> before they leave. The second one is uh, this past weekend, I spent three days watching softball games. My uh, daughter made a uh, hard pivot from ballet to softball. And oh, wow. yeah, she did ballet for eight years. And then she was like, okay, I'm done. And she was supposed to join soccer, but it was full. So she ended up in softball and she's absolutely loved it. And this past weekend was a tournament that the team entered in and it was a statewide tournament and they made it to the elite eight of the tournament. So they made it pretty wow. far in. Yeah. Out of all the Florida. Of her division, which is 12 and under. So yeah, yeah, they made it really far. And I mean, by the end, I mean, we were just really into it and having a lot of fun. So uh, that, that was just a great time. And I was very proud of her. Still a big transition for her to go from ballet to softball, but she's excited to return next season and keep developing. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, no, thank you. And it's been great to be a part of that with her and know that this is something she chose and that she wants to do and she's loving. So it's, it's great. My third one is uh, I just booked some tickets this past week. We've been waiting, of course, for everything to sort of start to normalize or calm down and all that. I'll begin by just sort of describing it at a high level that my family, so the four of us, have a project we've given ourselves, a family project. And the family project is to visit all 50 states. But there's more to that, though. It's not just visit all 50 states. It's visit them in alphabetical order. Oh my God, dude. Yes, of course. I already told you my MCU problem. (laughs) So this falls right into that. Sorry, before I forget, I meant to ask with the MCU before we continue with this. Yes, yes. 
are you watching a whole season of a show in order or are you like looking at the release date and doing everything chronologically so that you might have to like alternate episodes of TV shows if they were on at the same time? Do you understand what I'm saying? I do understand what you're saying. My answer is even better than what you have just proposed. Okay, great. Because somebody like some random, you know, very smart Redditor decided to take all of the movies and all of like the Blu-ray DVD one-offs that I never even knew about. Oh my God. And put them in chronological order within the MCU. Oh my God. So, for example, uh, you will watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. like season one, episodes one to seven. Mm -hmm. And then you have to stop watching it so you could go watch Thor. (laughs) After you watch Thor, you return to season one, watch episodes eight to 16. Then you stop to go watch Captain America. Oh my God. And then you return to finish season one. But the thing is, it makes sense when you watch them. So, for example, like you watch Thor. And then you return to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. literally picks up right where the movie Thor finished. It's amazing. Oh, wow. Okay. You have this master list of the in-universe chronology and you're abiding abiding by that. that. That's incredible. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad I asked that because that's a better (laughs) answer than I could have possibly anticipated. All right. Anyway, states. And now I feel like I should have visited the states in chronological order, but it's too late for that. (laughs) (laughs) So we decided to do alphabetical order. We've already done, number one was Alabama. Okay, not too far from you guys. Yeah. Uh, Number two, Alaska, much farther away. Yes. (laughs) And you have not done that yet. No, we have. We did Alabama, we did Alaska, we did Arizona. And so we're on to state number four. We just booked the flights this past week to go to Arkansas. Oh, and you're like spending time in that state. You're not just like getting off the plane and being like, check, and then- Right, so the whole thing behind our project is we have to visit the state, like be there enough days to actually enjoy the state, but Mm -hmm. we also have to like treat it as if we were going to another country, right? Oh, fun. And so we have to like research the hell out of it. Like, where are we gonna stay? Where are we gonna eat? What are we gonna do? And so, yeah, we'll be going in late June to Arkansas for four days. Nice. I've never been to Alaska. I'm fascinated by it. Was it amazing? It was so beautiful. It was gorgeous. Yeah. Loved it. It's one of those states that is, it's a black box to me. I understand nothing about it really. You know, it's so far apart from everything else. Someday. Cool. It's too late for this, but I feel like what you should have done is, so you make that list of one to 50 and the first state you spend one day in. The second state you spend two days in. And then eventually wow. you're getting up to like almost two months in Wyoming, maybe? Oh boy. What's the last state alphabetically? Is it Wyoming? Yeah, I think it's Wyoming, yeah. Oh my God, but like Rhode Island will be like a month. Yeah. That ain't bad though. Get some coffee milk, I guess. <laughs> state drink. <laughs> okay, so I will now do my peaches. My first one is I've been really deep in a research hole working on new episode of Deep Cuts, which means that I have like 12 longhand double-sided legal pad pages of notes, which is my favorite thing to do. And I've just been reading a lot uh, and learning a lot and also feel like I'm going insane. So that's fun. I love that shit. My second peach is that I've been really into The Sopranos lately. And then I started watching slash listening to Talking Sopranos, which is Michael Imperioli and Steve Shrippa talking about every episode. God, it is just like dopamine straight to the dome. It's so wonderful. Wow. (laughs) And like Michael Imperioli is such a cool dude. And like the difference between Christopher on the show and then Michael just being like so well-read and intelligent and like 
just really able to pick apart like acting choices and themes. Like it's seriously like the best and I've been loving it. Awesome. And then my third peach is that as referenced last week, my underage feet on WikiFeet were uh, promptly <laughs> deleted by the size admin. So checkmate foot fetishists. <laughs> yeah. So last week, Will, we discovered that someone had uploaded pictures of Layton's feet to WikiFeet which she does not approve of, and oh. was when she was a teenager. They had to have gone all the way back through my Instagram to uh, find those feet pics. Oh, my. We discovered that while recording, and she promptly wrote them. And they took them down, like, basically right away, which was shocking, I think, to all parties involved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just because I know women who have had a hard time uh, getting anything done with wiki feet, but I mm -hmm. think once you bandy around the term underage feet, they... Uh, they just kind yeah. of jump at it. And then I had to explain to my poor fucking therapist, my therapist shouldn't have to know about WikiFeet. He just shouldn't. <laughs> anyway, so those are my peaches. Awesome. Dude, Will, thank you so much for doing this. It's such a joy to have you on. We don't have enough time to talk together. Like, it's such a, a treat to have this time to spend with you. Mm. And I just want to thank you, especially with your parents in town and everything, taking the time to be here today. It's a real pleasure to catch up. Oh, uh, likewise, Brian. This was great. And I didn't realize I'd be taking so many notes. Both of you had brought up so many awesome things <laughs> that I have to go look into. But this is so great. And Leighton, it was nice to virtually meet you. Yeah, seriously. This was a joy. Where can people find you online? Is there anything that you want to plug? Actually, it's pretty up to date. My website, uh, will-luera.com or just wluera.com, same place that uh, will show you any classes I'm teaching, any shows that I'm in, both in person and virtual. Are you teaching virtual classes? I'm doing about, uh, I would say, maybe 70% virtual, 30% in person right now. Oh, that's awesome. Guys, Will is an incredible improv teacher. Like, if you're at all interested, I recommend it. I was able to learn from him for several years in Boston. He's the best. So Thank you, Brian. if you get a chance, do it. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you all. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was weird because I was... <laughs> I was literally trying to think of where I'm going to get breakfast tomorrow that might have the secret <laughs> combination. <laughs> well, we're, this podcast, if it has any guiding ethos, it's weird, awkward pauses while we're thinking about food. Yeah, I pray that the breakfast stars align for you. Thank you. <laughs> um, right. And to well, everybody else again, listening, Will. I, sorry, I completely stepped on you, Brian. That's fine. I was just saying thanks again, Will. Continue, please, Layton. All right, fuck you also. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone listening, I hope the breakfast star has also aligned for you as well as a variety of other stars. I pray for the safety of your feet. Why am I saying I pray? Jesus, Jesus, what's happening to me? Anyway. Uh, this is definitely the worst ending of any episode <laughs> in our history. Hold on. That's my line, Brian. <laughs> uh, this is the worst ending of any episode in history. And I also pray that, uh, as always, um, God damn it. Uh, stay safe, come hard. Goodbye. That's the end of the podcast. <laughs> Why do I do this to myself? Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonNight at gmail.com. <laughs>